welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. In today's episode, we interview Gene Polizinski, CEO of the Museum Institute in Washington, D.C. Gene was gracious enough to discuss the current state of media and challenges to the First Amendment when he visited campus earlier this year to present the Al Newhart Award for Excellence in the Media to Washington Post Executive Editor Marty Barron. Gene, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. You know, we're going to start with the hardest question first. What is the state of the First Amendment? Well, it depends on where you sit and where you speak, I think, um, and sometimes where you worship. Uh, Our quarterly report cards that use a team of 15 experts rated at a C plus, but that ranges a great deal. And within the team of experts, there's a great diversity. So let's take the freedoms in order very quickly. Religious freedom, religious liberty in America is rated generally pretty high. Uh, But again, uh, attacks on Muslims by those who uh, either see them as encouraging terrorism or simply as different um, are maybe at an all-time high. So on that side, I'd say, you know, it merits a very low grade. If you look at speech, um, we're in an era in which more people are speaking to more people than ever before, but you have the great debates over campus speech, what, you know, who should be allowed or permitted or protected to speak on a campus, and then a great discussion over are there actually limits to speech that we have not heretofore used hate speech for example should it be permitted in a new environment where it can spread so fast so far and so deeply uh, press well almost don't have to talk about that out loud today you have a president who calls the press the enemy of the people but if you look at the americans suspicion about the motives of press really predates trump goes way past that it goes back into the 80s and I think it was diminished resources produced diminished coverage, which led, led to some diminished confidence. So you've got that assembly petition flourishing. Uh, but at the same time, you have about 17 state legislators, legislatures passing laws in some form that would try to limit public assembly, particularly protests and particularly around state houses, because I think they don't like to see it, where literally in one state in Tennessee, if you ram someone with your car going through a demonstration, you're held without liability, which it's just bizarre. I won't survive constitutional scrutiny, but that's what somebody's idea of, of you know, assembly and petition. So, uh, you know, the law remains much the same as it's been for the last 40, 50 years, but the way we practice and observe it gives pause. Well, maybe let's start with assembly first. You kind of mentioned there that at the end, um, you know, with all the demonstrations that we've seen since the Parkland shootings, even here in South Dakota, school districts have had to wrestle with the idea of student student protests and student walkouts. Does the First Amendment protect school walkouts? Well, uh, no. Uh, As a bottom line, uh, what happens is that uh, a 1960s decision, Tinker versus the Independent School Board of Des Moines, um, said that students and teachers don't lose their schoolhouse rights, their, I mean, their, their essential constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. But they made two exceptions. One, if your practice of your right intrudes on or diminishes someone else's right, so being respectful of other students and teachers. And the, then the big Magilla, which is disrupts, disrupts the pedagogical process, the educational process. So clearly a walkout disrupts the educational process. So um, we were advising students back when the Parkland demonstrations were still in the talking stage. Don't automatically depend on the idea that you're going to be protected if you're leaving school for, quote, the right reason or a good reason, which was to engage in civic protest. Truthfully, you're not probably covered because clearly disrupting the educational process is not covered by, by that. Having said that, however... Uh, We advise school systems to look at walkouts not as disruptive of the educational process, but part of it. If you're training people to be citizens, young people who are be full citizens, what better way than finding an issue? They have found an issue about which many of them feel passionately. And why not declare that a half day of optional class or um, offer some alternative to suspension or penalty for being gone. Maybe it's write a paper on your experience if you're not going to be in class that day. Or, best of all, maybe talk about the role of protest in American life 
leading up to it. So make it an educational experience. So protected, no. Encouraged, perhaps. You know, another protest which has garnered a lot of media attention um, has been NFL players uh, who kneel before the national anthem. Again, you know, it's a... It, as you said, your essential constitutional rights don't sort of stop when you walk through the schoolhouse gate. What about in a workplace? Do some of the rights that I have in terms of free speech stop when I go into you know, my cubicle at work? They do. And that's not something people tend to understand. I think it causes a lot of problems for people. Uh, the First Amendment restrains government from restricting your right to speak or to be heard. Uh, it does not protect you in terms of relationship with your employer. <clears throat> so you don't have a constitutional right to stand up in your cubicle and suddenly uh, begin making a political speech or say you're going to take the half day off while you go to a march or to kneel, um, maybe in a business meeting and not just the NFL sidelines, take a knee there. You don't have a constitutional right to that. Now, again, that's by the law. Um, should we encourage people to be engaged and maybe express themselves in a public way? I think we should. But in terms of the First Amendment, Colin Kaepernick and others, it's really not a First Amendment issue. It's a relationship between employee and employer, and that's where the law stands. Yeah, you said when we or were talking. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. You know, you talked about this notion that if a protest, you know, disrupts um, an educational institution, you know, that's ruled unconstitutional. I'm curious how that tension uh, presents itself here on college campuses like USD. How does protest work on a college campus? Well, when you have a public campus, I think you have much greater freedom if you're a student or a faculty member to protest, make your message be heard. Um, and I think the university has a, a similar obligation. Uh, they are an agent of the government, uh, even if they may feel sometimes far removed, given that the level of state support is so small these days. But they are a state-supported school. So they would be deemed public entity, public institution. Um, and so the rules under which student media operate are very different. The rules in which one might protest on a campus is very different. I would argue that as great a protection as one has on a public campus to speak your mind, print what you will, um, speak out. You, you're almost at the other end of the spectrum on a private campus. So let's leave them off to the side for the moment. Um, in a public university, um, you have the legal requirement again to observe this concept that, well, Tinker applied to secondary schools and middle schools uh, and elementary schools. Um, the concept, and I think the behind Tinker, is that people have a right to speak wherever they are except for very narrow, very specific government interests. And if you think about a college campus, um, they're, they're, to me, well, there's almost no other place where there's such a limited public interest in shutting down variety of opinion as there is on a university campus. You know, I think some people sometimes think you start these free speech questions sort of at ground zero. You know, it's, there's, a, there's somebody speaks, and then do, does it go right or left? Does it go approved or not approved? No. It is presumed to be constitutionally protected until it is not, and that is a very narrow window. So the burden is entirely on the college to prove that you shouldn't be able to speak, um, that's why I find campus free speech zones such an anomaly. All of America is a free speech zone. You might have specific locations where by time, place, and manner, you shouldn't have a public demonstration immediately outside the cardiac ward in a university hospital. Not a great place for people to be shouting and yelling and making a lot of noise. But that's not content or viewpoint restriction. That's just time, place, and manner, which, which is permissible. So uh, I think in the debate over who gets to speak at a campus or whether it's a good idea for controversial speakers to be here. We've got to start with the idea that, yes, anybody may speak. You could make some minimal restrictions on time, place, and manner, but it should never be a viewpoint and content restriction. You know, what if I were to play devil's advocate here for a second Please. and argue that, look, you know, some of the speakers that, you know, are coming to college campuses are intentionally inflammatory and, um, you know, are... are espousing a viewpoint that doesn't fit with accepted, you know, university principle, principles like inclusiveness. Sure. Where does the tension, you know, with, with a speaker like that come into play and what rights do they have? What rights do the students have as, look, paying customers in some instances, you know, of the university that they're, they are studying at? Well, again, they are bound by attending a public university. 
again, if they're at a private university, there's probably much more grounds to say, I don't want to hear this and doesn't support our values. Public university, to me, has a unique place in our society. It's a place where the marketplace of ideas should be the most protected and the most observed. There is no right to be protected from. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be. Don't go. Um, you know, if you really feel so motivated, stand outside and object. Uh, but the concept of somebody just being disruptive uh, or looking at their motivation is a very slippery slope. I have no doubt. And in fact, I know that that argument was used against people who were demonstrating for civil rights, who were demonstrating for women's rights, who were demonstrating for LGBT rights, who were demonstrating against this war or that war, uh, demonstrating for maybe greater protection for males and females against sexual predators. I mean, you know, at some point, all of those things are going to make somebody uncomfortable. And there's no right in America to be comfortable. In fact, we have an obligation as citizens to look for those instances in which we are made uncomfortable, if only to be better prepared to join in the debate. So I don't, I don't buy the idea that just because Milos or Spencer or any of these people who seem to make a, a living being controversial, you almost forget what they're for, um, that they, they don't deserve a place on campus. If they want to set up tent and be and you know and ask people to hear them fine um, i see that as a protected right uh, because i don't want to get into what they're saying as much as i want to be able to say you have a right to say it and if i listen and don't like it i'll speak out against you now I'm not ignorant of security issues of cost of hurt feelings but the price of being in a democracy is that you're going to hear things you don't like you know the alternative is to live in a in an autocratic society where only approved messages get through. And only, you know, if anybody objects to a message, you know, I don't want to live in that bland world where it's so nice that nobody objects to it. Well, my God, think of the narrow range of conversation that is going to go on. Well, and I think I'm beginning to, under, to understand, but I know that you have said that freedom is the best response to instances of white supremacy and fear mongering. I'm curious if you can elaborate on what you mean by that. Well, that's to the ideas expressed. The conduct, um, clearly, you know, there's no defense for somebody who takes their car and rams a crowd of people. Now, that's the extreme. But someone who uh, is deliberately provocative using racial taunts, for example. Well, we have existing law to deal with that. It's called fighting words. You know, we've spent a century or more constructing an entire legal regime that points out when you cross the line from speech or ideas into conduct. And we reserve the right that there are words or words spoken in anger at a very proximate, close range, directed immediately to you, might provoke in any reasonable person a response that they're not responsible for, a violent response. We call those things fighting words. Let me give you an example. I might deliver a speech here at USD in which I am a horrible uh, bigot. Uh, I come from a Polish-Irish background, so let's just use me. And I say Polish and our people of Polish and Irish descent are horrible people. They smell. They're not human beings. In reality, they're you know subhuman. And I and I all the racist trash that people could speak. If I'm saying that out loud, I'm going to irritate a lot of people. I hope. Uh, but I'm totally protected. If I say that, you know, we ought to create a roving bands of people who search the streets for these people and by God they're going to get what's coming to them I'm probably still protected if I say all those things and I point to the back of the room and say there's one now go get them that's not protected that is proximate immediate direct cause of an action that is clearly violent and criminal so as you go through that spectrum of completely protected but perhaps repellent ideas to putting into practice or motion a violent act based on what I've said, on that spectrum, it depends on the facts and the circumstances. You know, I could say, again, using myself as an example, I hope that meteors fly out of the sky and hit every Polish-American, Irish person in the country. Uh, that's a hateful statement. You could make it a lot worse. 
but I have no power to make that happen. That is completely constitutionally protected. It's repellent and abhorrent and, and biased and bigoted. It's protected speech. You know, what about the argument that if you allow these ideas to gain a foothold, you know, it risks snowballing as a result of maybe intangential things like economic insecurity that kind of exacerbate the problem. I mean, what would what, what's your answer to that that says, look, you know, there's a danger in some of this. You see this in Western democracies, even in Europe, where, um, you know, authoritarian and fascist regimes are using, you know, the, the concept of free speech to um, start advocating for regimes that in all likelihood would take those rights away. Well, here I think you come up against both the theoretical and the practical. I mean, theoretically, these ideas have been around since the start of civilization. They're not new. They ebb and flow. Uh, societies grasp them or not. Uh, I don't know that, you know, a speaker at any given moment or even in cumulative effect um, is, is a single factor in driving a, a country turn to fascism or countries turn away from fascism. But on a practical level today, I mean, in the past, you couldn't jail everybody who had that idea, although people would try. Today, if controlling a message was ever possible before, it's not now because of the little magic lantern. I mean, people have access to the planet from their basement. I mean, you're, you're not going to stop um, uh, speech, in whether it's hateful or positive, in any form anymore uh, by just saying, I'll control that speech or shut it down. I can't permit it because, oh, those poor, fragile folks, not me, I'm, I'm resistant to it, but those poor, fragile folks out there will be convinced by a slick-tongued devil. Oh, well, come on, first of all. And secondly, um, that's the give and take in a democratic society. What it means really is not try to shut down the speaker, but get off your butt and, and speak out in opposition. A lot of people want to take a shortcut through the First Amendment to shut down the speech they don't like. And they'll, they'll have this supposed danger, this threat to democracy. And really, the threat to democracy is them just sitting on their duff and not doing anything. So I you know, I think on a practical level, it's, it's a, a bankrupt idea. Um, again, we, we never, I think, can point in history to an idea that was killed by killing the speaker. I, you know, ideas go on after their original proponents die, uh, good or bad. Um, you know, I, I think what corrupts and defeats bad ideas is, one, being exposed, daylight, shown for what they are, and secondly, good people motivated to speak out against them and show an alternative and better path. Um, ultimately, that's what the marketplace of ideas is about, and that is really the only effective way to counter all these things that we, you or I might find be negative. Yeah, I think this might be a good time to kind of switch gears and focus a little bit on the state of the media. You know, you just kind of mentioned it. Technology has impacted how reporters cover the news. And I'm curious what you think maybe the responsibilities that come with, you know, technology has kind of wrought upon the news industry. I think, you know, the Eric Gardner case, um, him being, you know, this was the, the person who was killed by New York City police officers um, after he was put in a chokehold. You know, it went viral. Um, and that's a term that when I kind of prepared for this interview, I thought about it, you know, in a different era, maybe you would have talked about, you know, being on the front page of the newspaper as being sort of the most important daily um, news or New York post kind of tabloid. But the very vocabulary we use to describe how important uh, a news item is, has changed. It's now, you know, has it gone viral? The video went viral. How do journalists wrestle with technology, the access that it provides, the exposure it provides, the responsibilities that come kind of inherent with this whole new level of transparency that didn't exist in different eras? Well, let me take five seconds to answer your question. No, I'm kidding. That's that's the cosmic question. Um, So let's start with the idea that whatever we had pre-internet, or really pre-80s, when newspapers were the strongest economically in their history, um, really... Uh, newspapers, radio, and TV printing new money in the basement, basically having huge profit margins. Um, they were the vehicle for mass advertising. Uh, everybody felt they had to be watching the local news or taking the local newspaper. They were ingrained. Um, starting in about, oh, the late 80s, people began to find alternate ways to advertise. 
then you accelerate that through the start of the web, Craigslist, which took away the incredibly lucrative classified ads from newspapers, uh, the diffusion of media from three networks, if you were lucky, uh, in the in the 50s and 60s, to uh, uh, suddenly by the late 90s have an explosion of entertainment options on your television set, including time sharing, uh, or time deferring, rather, so you could watch a program later. Um, all of those things have conspired to weaken what we call media. Now, we have growing up in their stead, but still very early, uh, the new media, uh, whether that's aggregators of what traditional media produces, uh, just piling it up into a big bundle and sending it to you, or producing new media. Then you have social media, which is entirely yet another option. So what's happened, I think, is that um, it's it's a vicious cycle that I hope news outlets can break. Fewer uh, reduced income means fewer resources, which means less news that is original, that is thorough, and across a wide range of topics. So, if you have a choice choice between the city council meeting and covering the Kardashians, uh, you cover the Kardashians because the number of clicks, which theoretically translates into ad revenue, but doesn't, um, is is greater with the Kardashians for some reason. This gossipy family we love to follow. Um, so you really, you have to go say, all right, you know, we have fewer people. Recent study I came across last Monday, week ago Monday, said that we've gone from 60,000 people working in newsrooms in 1990 to 24,000 today, less than half. Well, that city county council meeting, the school board hearing, um, the other essential stories and about life in your community don't get covered. Well, if you go to celebrity or aspirationals, you know, young person succeeds against all odd stories that are flooding newspapers because they're a great breed. Everybody wants to see somebody succeed against yes. All that produces to me trivial news. And if you define yourself as trivial by what you produce, why are you surprised other people treat you that way? So it becomes this echo chamber of reduced news means less respect. Less respect means less business, which means less news. We have to find a way to break that cycle. Technology has ripped out the financial underpinnings. And I think as a result of trying to rather stupidly respond to new media uh, with, with this eyeball count, you know, number of clicks, uh, what, what is boring. I mean, I, when I was started, a young reporter in the 1960s covering uh, county council and city council meetings, I might have thought everybody in town read what I wrote the next morning after that meeting. But I think I was realistic enough to know they really didn't. But they knew I was there. So if they were concerned about a water rate increase that was proposed or which streets were going to be paved this week or health response to a tuberculosis outbreak, they knew I was there to report on it. So there was a reliance on the news presence. And that's faded or gone today. And I think that leads to a lot of disrespect, uh, questions about motivation and bias, uh, which, frankly, are people taking advantage of a wounded beast. Well, and that's, yeah, th- that's illuminating. I mean, that, and that was the question I think I was going to ask is that, and you mentioned this at the beginning, I think it's fair to say President Trump in particular has been very critical of what he terms oh, sure. the fake yeah, he's news. He's political gain. And, yeah. and look, all presidents do this. I think President Trump has taken it maybe to a whole new level. You know, there is some merit to some of his arguments, right? When you talk about news that has converted itself into, you know, clickbait material and it decreases the credibility of that organization and the, you know, biased nature that the news may be presented with. How does the media, I don't know what the right word for it is, but, you know, fight for its reputation when it can't necessarily directly, you know, answer the president's charges when he accused them of bias. Yeah, you're going to have Marty Barron on in a few days and um, one of your podcasts and Marty's phrase for his newspaper is, we're not at war with the administration, we're at work. That's a great answer. Uh, you know, I think the, the question is to really say, to, the question to ask and respond to isn't how do you gain back trust. I mean, uh, that's simple. You do a good job. You, you become something somebody can depend on. The question really is to say, What's the way people want to get news today? Because we're not going back to the day when you were force-fed news by an editor or three networks, you know, anchors. Uh, we're in control now. We decide what to look at. 
So how do you deliver news in an interesting way that gets people out of you know thought bubbles and, and uh, defeats this, frankly, bogus, politically motivated scream about bias? Uh, most reporters could care less what their story ends up saying. They want a good story. And that can be a pejorative. Oh, you're just in it for a story. And the, I always thought the answer was, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. Um, I, of course I'm in it for a story. I'm in it for a story not for personal glory. I mean, come on. How many reporters have been elected king or what? I mean, I mean that that's, again, these are all such silly arguments. They, they fall apart the minute people make them. You know, I have people call me and say, I do a column mentioned inside the First Amendment. Uh, and I have people call me and say, you know, you're, you're on the pay of the Democratic National Committee. I mean, I want to answer the glim answer is if only, you know, I, at least I'd make a decent living. Um, but but the, the honest answer is, come on. I mean, do you really think that there's a phone call every morning where some vast media conglomerate called the media gets their walking papers or instructions from anybody? I'm sorry. If you've ever been the subject of a story, ever been interviewed, you know, your greatest risk is the person on the other end of the questions is going to screw up your answer. Um, it's not that they're going to call up some grand cabal that's headquartered in L.A. or New York or somewhere and say, what spin do I put on this story? You know, the media bias is a, a false flag. I think what we ought to be concerned about is is almost an irony of this. We do an annual survey, State of the First Amendment. It's, it's the larger annual version of the report cards. We've been doing it since 97. Last year, for the first time in maybe, oh, my goodness, many years, the number of people who said the media cannot report a story without bias dropped. And you want to say, how could that possible in this huge controversial time? Everybody says the media is biased. Well, you dig a little deeper, and the reason they're not biased is I'm only reading the people who are already telling me the story the way I think it ought to be told. So I'm either conservative or liberal. I'm either Hannity or Rachel Meadow. And and if, you know, obviously Hannity's telling me the news. He's not biased, so I have more confidence in the media because I'm never looking at the other side. So we have to get away from that and back to, in terms of our own motivation, what used to happen every time we turned the newspaper page or turned on an evening newscast, which is we didn't know what was coming. And we got that wonderful story about the young man who, against all odds, you know, got to the World Series, whatever it was, along with the latest development in the AIDS epidemic or horrible news about something that we just wouldn't read if we had the choice or, or listen to or watch. We have to get back to that in terms of our own judgment, accept the idea that we have to be exposed to things we don't like, don't want to see in order to be fully rounded. So I, I think we're in this spot. We have to remind ourselves this is all very new. I know for people who are younger than I am, much younger than I am, this is the only environment they've known. But trust me, it's not the environment we're going to have in 20 years. I don't know what that's going to look like. But we're in transition right now from this serendipitous presentation by gatekeepers whose job it was and finally honed skills to bring us the news we thought they thought we ought to have to something, maybe supplemented artificial intelligence. Maybe it's just greater self-discipline and exposing yourself to MSNBC and Fox, whatever it is, to a news environment where we hit more different kinds of news than just what makes us comfortable. I think ultimately that's going to be the solution to media, this so-called media bias. Yeah, you've kind of answered my next question, Sorry. which is, no, you know, we self-select the news that we watch um, and how much of this is an individual's responsibility to seek out different perspectives. You know, I look at it from my own experience of how I consume news. Most of it is on Facebook, um, you know, so it's news that either my friend has shared or something that I've already previously liked. I guess, you know, to ask the question a little bit different way and to gear it more towards kind of strategic calculations that the media industry made, um, you know, five, ten years ago as Facebook as a platform really started to explode. And, you know, their own internal platforms, whether it was apps on phones, et cetera, probably couldn't compete with the social media platform, which was Facebook. You know, how much has Facebook played a role in decreasing you know, the resources available to news organizations as it sort of served as this bottleneck platform, um, which takes a lot of the advertising dollars and takes a lot of the credit in a lot of ways. Well, I, I don't want to put too much of the burden or credit or whatever you want to blame, whatever you want to call it on Facebook. It's just one app among many, although it's huge. Um, 
I think all of social media has conspired to steal our attention away. And you know, we have to remember, when you read something on Facebook, you get a note from your friends. Um, you see how many people like your story or your account of something uh, or your photo, whatever it is. None of that is a news function. That is solely aimed at keeping you on that site longer so that they're going to get more eyeballs on more advertising, which is how they make money. So we can't mistake Facebook or other parts of social media for news providers at this time. Now, that might change. But right now, you know, the only reason they don't charge you for sending that message to your friend or looking at that message from your friend or item from your friend that they liked is because you're valuable to them as a commodity. You give, in effect, in return for giving attention, they give you a free service. News news producers, true journalists, are do much more than impart information. I mean, dictionaries impart information. Uh, stock tables are information. News providers, I think, should recognize that nobody's faster than Twitter and tell you something happened. But was that accurate or not? Um, is it all you need to know? What's going to happen next? What was behind it? Why did it occur? Uh, I think news operations with limited resources have to put their resources where they can. That analytical, critical thinking, uh, credible verifier role is so much better than rushing a team out to the scene of the latest accident on somewhere. Um, you could send a drone out to do that now. Uh, so that's on the producer side. On the news consumer side, we have absolutely stopped, have to stop being so damn comfortable with AI or an algorithm determining what it is we're going to see. Um, I don't know if we have to formalize in law the sort of European opt-in to letting your personal information be aggregated and sold. Right now we have we have an opt-out. We we give it away again for free in return for free, so-called free access to all this stuff. Um, and they're free to gather it and sell it. Um, I think some combination of being able to control who sees your information, and again, along with a tool you can more easily program to say, I want to hear everything about Trump and his VA nominee. That nomination's right now as we speak in play. Not just what Fox's take is on it or MSNBC's take is on it. It's, it's an entirely new information flow world. And the best response to your question is to say, we have to stop thinking in the old idea of I'm a bucket to receive, you know, and get out there and get in the mix. You know, to switch gears a little bit again, one of the things that, that I think is interesting about the First Amendment is the rights that it grants someone. And so when we talk about political campaign contributions. The rights that it protects. I'm sorry. We already have as individuals. Yes. It's okay. No, it's, no. A, it's and, an important I, point. I, sometimes I slip and say the same thing, so don't feel bad. No, but I, actually I think that's an important. Why, why is that the syntax of that comment important? Because rights that are granted can be taken away. Even in an area, I was actually on a program at Iowa State a week and a half ago with a gentleman who was a constitutional expert in Canada. And, and he was saying something about hate speech, and, and I needed to make the point that even in Canada, which we tend to think of as a mirror in America, because they're a commonwealth, they're free to regulate speech in a much broader fashion than the United States because if hate speech is deemed harmful to the body of Canadians, it's just, you know, it, can, it could potentially cause harm to the body. They, they have a much greater constitutional way to eliminate it. We start here from the premise that government has no role in our life except as a tool. And one of those tools is to, uh, in certain very identified areas, child pornography, true hate speech that is designed to harm and produce negative conduct, um, libel, you know, defamation. Um, those areas government has the right to restrict our speech. But only for those very identifiable reasons in a very narrow way that is the minimum of restraint or restriction required to establish, to, to get to the goal. So we can't have a list of hateful words. You know, we can listen for hateful words and determine if they are, if I'm shouting them in your face from six inches away, my conduct now has made those words fighting words, and I could be charged with an arrest, or charged and arrested. 
But if I stood 40 feet away and yelled at those same words to you, they're not actionable. So we start very differently. And it starts with this idea, again, that you don't start from even ground. You're not at the, at the net when it comes to questions about freedom. Freedom is all the way back where you own it as an individual. It's your intrinsic right. And government can intrude on that only in very narrow, very specific circumstances. So it sets the framework for all of our discussions. No rights granted. Rights in which government, government has no rights, by the way. Government has powers, delineated powers. They have no, government has no right. So their power to intrude on your rights is extremely limited. That's where we need to start discussions. When we talk about powers that we inherently have, you know, one of them is money. <laughs> and money often buys a larger soapbox um, from which to, uh, you know, broadcast someone's viewpoint. The First Amendment has been used to protect unlimited campaign contributions. How does the First Amendment figure into that discussion? Well, I, I got booed at a synagogue one time when I was speaking about this for an evening program. So I'm conscious of the fact that most people equate lots of money with evil. But I think under the current law, and maybe even theoretically, the Supreme Court got it right in Citizens United. And subsequently, uh, if I choose to speak through a check to a candidate rather than standing on the street corner shouting their name, to me that's speech. Now, do we regulate the speech, that is the money coming in, or do we have to get realistic about regulating the conduct it produces? I mean, right now, months after the donation is made we get a report they're unwieldy they're often not searchable in the way we could easily parse them um, states have different laws depending on what they report and whatever and, uh, that's the system by which we guard against the evil of money i think give a million bucks to your local city council person i don't think they know what to do with it frankly most because most campaigns don't cost that much yet um but then force me to report it right now. I can write a check, and I've done this in China. Write a check from my bank account. The minute that afternoon it hits a bank in China, there's an electronic communication of some sort, and that money goes out of my account like right now. In a world where that can happen, in rural China, you can't tell me we won't know. We can't track instantly every donation made and make that public and accountable. Now, do we trade off a little bit of freedom there? Sure. We prize anonymous speech in America. We have all the way back to the Federalist Papers where they it was kind of wink and blink. I think most people knew who it was, but they used Latin pseudonyms. Um, we prize that ability to occasionally be anonymous. But I've, I have to trade off... A restriction in a whole area of speech that engages me in political conduct versus a you know, minimal loss of my privacy. Uh, because some people are very happy with their donation being public. Um, then I vote for transparency. And I think transparency lets me know, oh, you got all your money from six people in, the, in Russia. Or you got you know, all your money from here and nothing here in Vermilion. Why is that? You know, that, but again, that requires me to look at the list and take some action. Again, people want a shortcut through the First Amendment. Let's just cut off the speech and that'll solve this problem. It never does. Now, Gene, this has been a fantastic interview. I would be remiss, I feel like, if I let you off the hook. Um, we want to hear an Al Newharth story. I know that you worked oh, with him for goodness. many years. Uh, you came here often uh, for the presentation of the Al Newharth Award um, for Excellence in the Media. I, I don't know if there is a certain one. Remember, young ears may be listening to this. So, I was going to um, say, let me get to the family-friendly ones. Now, the one I can tell you is um, that Al, when USA Today, began Al and a guy named John Quinn, who was his right-hand guy for a long time uh, in news in Gannett, and two people, John Curley, who was publisher of USA Today, and a guy named Ron Martin, who was managing editor. Um, they would work all day. We started at 8 in the morning. We went home at noon, or midnight or 11, 1 in the morning. Long days. Uh, so we were still using paper. We would pass around the stories, and everybody would write headlines. Well, the four of them got to writing and marking up headlines. So the next morning, three of them would be angry that we didn't use their headlines. So we had to issue them different color ink uh, so that we could, the next morning, hold up the paper and Al would storm in, you know, where's the, you know, I, and we'd say, well, Quinn, you know, you left and Quinn wrote a new one because we were just on the low end of that totem pole. But again, what, what I saw were four people whose collective experience in those days probably was, oh, close to 200 years collective experience in the business. Um, 
cared so much about this new product that they would sit there five and six and eight hours after they could have gone home uh, and and still write something like a headline to be the best it was. And it taught all of us who had that experience that you also didn't stop. You didn't write just something that was good enough. You wrote something that was the best you could do. And so these guys would sit there at last edition. Oh, my gosh, after midnight. They're still sitting there crossing out whether it ought to be this headline or that headline. But, uh, but uh, if I ran my chair back too far in those days, I ran into Al, which was never a good idea. <laughs> um, you know, and this might be the last question here. I know we probably kept you too long. I, I'm curious. You've had, obviously, an interesting view of so many important historical events. Um, probably have more information, you know, than the general public on some of these events that you couldn't necessarily disclose because it wasn't sourced accurately or whatever sort of privileges there were being a reporter and having this kind of unique viewpoint of history as it's happened, as it's developed, I don't know if there's one particular time, um, you know, one particular story uh, that really impacted you in the way you thought about the world. Oh, wow. That, you know, I wrote my first news story for money in 1969. So I've been around a long time. Um, Let me answer that if I could in this way. One of the most distressing things I see today is this cynicism about people in public life, uh, whether that's uh, city councilmen or members of the House or Senate in Washington, president, judges, federal judges. I went into a business that you're paid to be a skeptic, not a cynic, but a skeptic, to ask why. Do you really mean that? And is that true? And almost always the answer I got back, if I really dug deep enough, was, yes, I mean that. And yes, that is true. Now, I might have a view that somebody else doesn't like. These roads should be paved instead of those roads, or we should spend money in this area, not that area. But I rarely found, truthfully, I rarely found somebody who was just an absolute hypocrite. Uh, By and large, people who got into public life, um, where they may have to make compromises to get a, a bill passed or half a loaf is better than no loaf kind of decisions. They were almost always people generally motivated by wanting to do the right thing for their fellow citizens. And, and again, tremendous disagreement among these people at times with my own values. Um, you know, I, I, I found people who had a strain of racism or bigotry were the only people I found that wasn't true about. You know, they would use any means necessary to justify their bigoted ideas or their their tactics but if it was most people elected to the state house or to the congress covered presidential campaigns uh they genuinely wanted to do good now were they sometimes guilty of having a big ego sure you can't get out in public life without some kind of an ego because everybody's going to tell you at one point or another you're full of it um but they generally are, are decent people now, you know, there are bad apples. There are everywhere. Um, but I, 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 that loss of confidence today uh, in, the, in the basic motivation, you know, we, we, we don't refer to civil servants or civil service anymore in government. They're bureaucrats or the swamp. Oh, you know, please. I mean, there are people who dedicate themselves to making government work in, in what are generally not the highest paid positions on the planet. Uh, they may trade job security for salary, but they got you know you got to live. If you can get job security for your family, that might be what your personal goal is. But they're generally committed to doing a good job. They're over, so often the problems are a lack of resources, uh, you know, those kinds of things that really come into play. You know the famous I think every I don't know if it's true in South Dakota everybody hates the motor vehicle bureau or the license branch you know but you go down there and suddenly realize there's like 82 people waiting to get their license renewed or their car registration done and there's six people behind the counter trust me after a year any one of us is going to be a jerk uh you know now i think they found actually new ways to automate most motor vehicle branches that's pretty cool but um again i that's if I, if I, that's a, I've never been asked that question quite that way. And if I had to take away from my career the, the, the sort of wonderment at that, that there are still so many good people in the process. Um, and and yeah, there are some jerks. Uh, another four or five hours we could go through my list. But there are some jerks, but there, uh, there are everywhere. Um, you know, I defy anybody in their own family who doesn't have somebody they don't like. Come on. Uh, so I, I would think that 
I've been struck by the number of good people. I'm most disappointed in a way with the current easy cynicism about those people. Um, you know, get in there and find out what they really do. Uh, is there waste and abuse, sometimes fraud? Sure. It's a human enterprise. But by and large, we get what we pay for. And, and unfortunately, we pay for what we get. You know, the last question that I'll ask you, um, we are very proud of our Department of Media and Journalism here at the University of South Dakota. We have a lot of young, aspiring journalists who come here. What would you offer them um, as a piece of advice as they enter a career that, you know, ha- has reached a tumultuous period oh, in yeah, its industry? Yeah. What what piece of advice would you offer them as they, um, you know, learn uh education in journalism and you know go out there and start reporting the news well their challenges are very different when i came out you were kind of assured of a job you just didn't know quite where but you know you you were going to get a job uh you walked into a system that if somebody 100 years earlier walked into it they they kind of recognize it tools might be slightly different uh but you know they basically could see it uh and you kind of knew what you were supposed to do you covered meetings you did this and there was a template and you had mentors and you're much more on your own today uh, and that requires both better preparation, which I think departments like this one are, are providing people, uh, but also a flexibility that I didn't have to worry about. You know, the best job for me uh, was within three hours of my hometown, maximum. Today, you might have to go all the way across the country to find a job that you think is the best one for you. Um, on the other hand, new media provides an incredibly rapidly changing landscape that I think is going to produce the new kinds of journalism that we're starting to see, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners this year, huge number of online sites and stories and partners that are non-traditional by media definition. So it's a world of tremendous opportunity. We're in this transition zone. We don't know what we're going to have. There's no settled right now for the next, you know, even when TV came out after about the first five or eight years, we kind of knew what the template was for television, how they were going to produce, they're going to be specials, evening newscasts, you know, that kind of stuff. We have no idea what's going to be online, uh, best delivery system. Uh, So it it, requires much more self-confidence, which I say derives from training and experience. Uh, So go to college, get all the experience you can, work on college media. You're going to need that immediately when you get out. Um, But, and be flexible. Uh, you you know the days when you could say I'm going to stay within three hours of my hometown to get a job, nah, probably gone. Or you're selling yourself short. You're just taking a job. You're not taking the job. Um, so flexibility, preparation. Uh, it's still an incredible ticket to the inside part of how things work. Uh, that's been the greatest joy is you get to walk into places that you have no other reason to be there um, and see what goes on. And, and then uh, change people's lives. You know, I, I think you almost might say that the, that the young people who are marching in the, the, the uh, March for Our Lives movement on the guns, you know, they're, they're all fledgling journalists because what they were doing was taking an incident, conveying information to people, in their case, the dangers and the, as they see the unregulated guns, um, and trying to change the world. You know, as a journalist, you get a chance every day, you got a chance at doing that. You might write a story that makes the medical community think differently about something. Uh, you might write a story about poverty that motivates a community to change the way they approach uh, delivery of services to low-income people. Uh, you may be able to write about the success that a mayor or a council has in attacking a problem. That's an example to other mayors in other cities. Uh, you might find you know, somebody screwed something up. That's a good example of what not to do. I can't think of many other professions, really, where you get a chance to do that on a daily basis, uh, and, and largely by stint of your own effort. You know, a judge can do that because they sit and hear cases all day, but people bring things to them. They add to that. They make a judgment, but they don't have to go out and bring the cases into the courtroom. Uh, journalism is still a uniquely, to me, incredibly satisfying, valid profession. But there's more of a burden on the practitioner, the young practitioner today, to be ready because there isn't that time and mentoring system in place. All those people are gone. And, and it does require greater flexibility. But, uh, and, you know, salaries are still lousy. Um, but, you know, that, that can change rapidly in a new media environment uh, where, you know, you, you can maybe benefit as a thing takes off. There's some tremendous things. A former 
Freedom Forum staffer who worked here in this very building, Jack Marsh, with a partner, I think, have developed a new mechanism for public service journalism in South Dakota. I'm going to forget the name, but you may be able to, able to help me. Newswatch, South Dakota, is it South Dakota Newswatch? Um, if, if we can look it up quick. Um, it, you know, there's a new model of, of holding government accountable, of reporting to citizens where maybe the Argus Leader and other newspapers don't have those resources today. Um, you know, think about the opportunity one has as a young reporter maybe working for that operation. Um, wow, to public service journalism at its finest. So I, I'm sorry for that long-winded answer, but I'm passionate about it because I think the, the glib answer is there are no jobs, don't get into it. It's a dying profession. Maybe the way we did it is dying, you know, printed on dead trees and stuffed it in your front box, uh, news box. Uh, but journalism in a free press is flourishing. And I'm confident that people will pay for credible real information uh, and that part of that system will be supporting the people who bring in who gather that and bring it to you and it is south dakota news watch and you may have suggested Good. another guest that we need to have come on uh, the podcast i would recommend it i think jack uh, his former editor uh, of the argus leader and former head of the operation here at the new hearth media center um, has a unique perspective uh, and as I can uh, would tell him to his own face that Jack, at your incredibly advanced age, uh, to to take on a new <laughs> Jack's not that old, take on a, a new enterprise like that and offer people in this state a new way to get news that supplements what they're getting. Um, you know what, what could be more exciting than being on that venture? I've been lucky to be at the startup of a bunch of things. I started a bureau in Indianapolis for Gannett, USA Today, uh, Sports Weekly when I was. A, temporarily off in the sports world for a few years running the section there um startup of 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 podcasts and television productions at the at the foundation that i'm with the freedom forum which is behind the museum and the museum is too startups are tremendously invigorating but they also usa today set a template it was the web before the web and you might say um but it also set a template for newspapers that they're now all really coming to um i mean just get think about the opportunity i was what 29 seven years out of college when I got a chance to be the Washington editor of USA Today. I can tell you in almost no other profession would that kind of opportunity presented itself. But, uh, you know, uh, I was lucky, although some people say luck is just being ready to take a chance. Uh, that's the invigorating part of journalism. It's it's a little harder today, no doubt, but uh, I think the payoffs are tremendous in it. So I would say to people, get ready. Use your time in school, every minute of it, to get ready because it's a much more competitive world when you get out. But, but don't let that stop you from getting into it. Gene, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview fourth-year medical student Anna Bonson, who recently won a U.S. Public Health Award for her work training cosmetologists to recognize the signs of skin cancer. Until next time, go Yotes.